0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Begolke. John Mitchell is not here with us this week, but we have the pleasure of a guest with me today. It is the editor of Saturday Blitz, Connor Muldowney. Today, we will be talking about... Uh, One of our favorite topics here on the podcast, transfers, uh, specifically in regards to Bob Bowlesby's recent comments about transfers. Then we're going to be looking a bit at some of the things that have us excited in the upcoming season. And finally, for our last segment, we're going to quiz Connor a bit on some of the questions that John and I talked about earlier in the podcast, some of our, our personal memories of college football. Um, with that said, it's great to have you with us today, uh, Connor. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I got some big shoes to fill. Yeah, it, it's always a pleasure to get to talk with John, but I'm really excited to to dive into some of these topics with you as well. I know we've talked a lot of football over the years um, in terms of on the Slack channel and on the website and everything, but it's really fun to get to do it in this format as well. Absolutely. So the first topic we were going to go into today was looking at transfers. So Bob Bowlesby, the Big 12 commissioner, recently came out and was talking about how he thinks everybody in every sport, no exceptions, should have to sit out a year when they transfer between schools. Um, He was saying this in regards to the fact that certain non-revenue sports do not have this restriction and was really just talking about how it should be uniform across the board, no exceptions, one year sitting out if you transfer. How does that sit with you, Connor?
1: Uh, the whole transfer thing has gotten so big lately, and it's 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 a big topic of discussion. Sitting out of you, not sitting out of you, um, it, I guess it all depends on the situation, But but across all sports like that, it's very, very hard to... What if a kid wants to train through to play lacrosse? You're going to make him sit out a year. That's nobody will even know he's playing one year or another if he's not in a big school. Um, I I like the one year rule for the most part, but it seems more and more that the one year rule gets waived and there's so many exceptions like that. Tate hey, Martell, Justin Field, Like why are they eligible? but Luke Ford at Illinois.
0: Yeah, The NCAA
1: needs to come out with some, like, I agree, there needs to be uniform rule across all sports, whether it's sitting out a year or making them immediately eligible, because what's happening now is just, it's creating too many gray areas, and
0: that's making everybody confused. Uh, definitely. Don't get me wrong. I can see the value in, in having a very clear-cut rule that, you know, um, you can very easily look at, and what's there is there. Um, I do think that with the way the NCAA has gone about issuing waivers, especially, it does bring up a lot of questions about what is deserving of a waiver, what isn't. Um, At the same time, I've obviously been on record here many a time saying that, you know, transfers should just happen. It's one of those things where, you know, if we want to put in this stipulation across the board, great. But I think it needs to be there for everybody involved with the sport if that's going to be the case.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've i kind of jumped back and forth with the one-year thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, some athletes, you know, transfer one year and then the next year they'll transfer again. That's when I can see, you know, give them – give them a one-year grace period after their second transfer or something like that, so they're not just transferring, transferring, transferring until they land a starting job somewhere. I could see that being a a perfect fix, just immediately eligible for the first transfer, and then after that, every time after that, they have to sit here.
0: Yeah, I I could totally see that being a much more fair application of the rules. It really does make sense in that regard. You know, if you're going to be a a serial transfer case— it it, it it there does need to be something in place to prevent players from jumping to a different school every year. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think yeah. it, it doesn't do the student any service any more than it does the team or the sport as a whole to have them jumping around every year. But at the same time, we haven't really seen a lot of that. Like, you know, hearkening back to that really feels like you're going back to the you know, the the 19-teens and the 1920s when players would mm-hmm. go suit up for four or five different universities at a go. You know, in a single season, you definitely had cases of that. It's not yeah. what, that's not what we're talking about here, though. I mean, at most, you're going to have a player jumping between two, you know, at most transferring twice. And I'm somebody who transferred twice during my undergrad years. I obviously wasn't playing football, but... You know, there are different reasons why people transfer and not all of them are just competitive in nature. So that's why I think, you know, putting a hard and fast rule in, it it really does create a slippery slope where you're saying even, you know, circumstances to be home with a sick relative to be closer to them or something like that. Even, you know, when you put in a hard and fast rule like that, you offer no leeway for a case that may really be legitimately a hardship
1: that's true that's true it's it's hard to you know, there's a lot of opinion opinions on that CIA side of what constitutes worthy of a waiver and what doesn't and that's kind of where it gets them in trouble and it gets you know people lose respect for it. And, and, and the whole luke ford thing is is the biggest one that i've seen it's how can you say, okay, Tate Martell, you didn't win the starting job at Ohio State, you want to transfer to Miami, you're okay. But Luke Ford, you want to go be close to your sick grandparents, that's not okay. But I agree with you where if it was across the board one year, no matter what, then people would still feel bad for Luke Ford. And then, you know, there's still going to be people up in arms over one thing or another. So it's, it's such a tough a tough area to judge the the whole transfer thing. It's just, I don't know. It's too difficult to make a judgment on right through the NCAA, but they have to make a decision about it.
0: Well, they certainly do. And, you know, Bob Bolesby obviously, when he talked about this, um, you know, he, he was talking about the fact that you know, he was talking about non-revenue sports and the fact that there's a different set of rules for them. And so I think it's really important to look specifically at what he was talking about in that context. And, I, you know, I, I do see that there would be some value in having a uniform rule. But for me, honestly, like we were talking about just a moment ago, I think at least for that first transfer, just have it be a uniform transfer across the board. Get to play immediately, you know, it takes out the guesswork of waivers, and then if you have a second transfer, sit out a year. That That's the year that you have to sit out and play on the scout team and whatnot. That's, uh, I agree. They call that the Blake Barnett rule. That should yeah. be the new rule name. I, I like it. I, I think that's a great way to frame it, the Blake Barnett rule. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no knock on Blake Barnett. Of course, he's probably a great kid, but... He had trouble
0: making up his mind. Yeah, and like I said, that's plenty of kids. And it could be something as simple as you decide, you know, you finally figure out what you want to major in. That's the whole reason I left school as a freshman and then transferred to a different school as a sophomore, was I finally figured out what I wanted to do with a degree, what I actually wanted to go study. And, you know, then I found a school that would let me do that. And, um, you know, you see kids doing that same thing as well. I don't think it's just a matter of playing time. I I, I think, for instance, about different players who, who transfer for their graduate degree. If you're going to put in a stipulation like this, are you also taking out the graduate transfer rule? Like, that's really one of those sort of unresolved questions that also comes up for me. Because, you know, you do need to go off into another school to get a a degree in the field that you want to, an advanced degree. It's just the way that academia works. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if the NCAA wants to talk about these kids being pro in something other than sports, that, that should be unequivocally rewarded. It really should. I
1: agree. I think the grade transfer rule is great how it is. I I don't see any problem with, you know, you completed your education, and you you want to finish, you know, a masters or whatever else somewhere else. I don't see any problem with being immediately eligible if you if you graduate and still have football uh, eligibility. I think that's a perfect rule.
0: Yeah, I, I, I and that's you know, I think it works out so well. It, it's one of those things mm-hmm. that it just it really does practice what it preaches in terms of rewarding a student um, for being a student for actually going through the motions and getting their degree. Right.
1: Right. I mean, student athlete is the name student comes first. And you're like, you said that NCAA is rewarding these kids for, you know, either graduating a year early or, you know, going through their lecture year and still taking the same amount of classes and credits. And totally. I, I like the rule and yeah, they definitely should be rewarded for, you know, sticking it out and graduating and putting in the hard work off the field as well.
0: Awesome. Well, it, you know, I, I, I don't think it's anything where our opinion is going to have much sway with the NCAA brass. But, you know, I think really the, the, the thing that came out for me in talking this through is it, I, I think a uniform rule makes sense. For me, though, a uniform rule should look like you just get to transfer it that first time. And then if you transfer again... You know, before your undergraduate degree has been earned, you have to sit out a year and you just don't put any um, waivers on that. You don't put any stipulations. You just let somebody know, like, obviously, like you get your first transfer for free. It's just a free pass. You, you know people yep. people get into academia they re they reevaluate what's important to them they reevaluate what they want to be doing like we said sometimes somebody wants to go back closer to home whether it's yep. you know simple homesickness like we saw with Brew McCoy or it's something where <laughs> a family member is ill and you're really you know you're going back to be closer to them in their last days um whatever it is like take that free transfer um, yep, and, and yeah, if like make it consistent across the board, that's great. That's great, Bob. But don't you can't reverse the way things have already started to go. You're not going to to make it more draconian, more strict on non-revenue players just because you want a uniform rule. That's never going to yeah. fly.
1: That's that's definitely not fair to the, the other sports that obviously don't bring in the attention or the money or, you know, they that are just kind of forgotten. When you think about a, a university's athletic teams, you can't just create a rule after they've gone how long with, without one. So I, I agree with that. There needs to be, I like the, the one free transfer rule, but like in Bruce McCoy's uh, case, how would you, how would you rule that? Would that be two transfers?
0: You know, that's an interesting question. You know, we obviously talked about this case some last week, uh John and I mm-hmm. did, and it's a really messy case. Like, yes, he did pra- he did play spring practice. Yes, you know, he was officially on that team at Texas. Um and yes, it does look like he might very well have to sit out a year this, you know, now that he has transferred back to to USC. And Honestly, that's okay. Like, I, I I think if you've already gone through the motions with a team, if you've already had, you know, official practices, if you if you were on the field at the spring game, you, you were obviously invested somewhat in that team, and correct. Um. So, yeah, I think in that case, it would be fair to have to sit out. You can't be, a, like we were talking about before, you can't be a serial waffler and bounce between schools and expect there not to be any, you know, payment that you have to make for that.
1: Yeah. His case is definitely probably the weirdest, strangest, weirdest <laughs> I've ever seen. I've never seen a kid sign with one school um get a release from a letter, sign with another school, go to that school, then go back to the other school. I think that's, that's gotta be a first for college football. And there's been some weird recruitments and player situations
0: out there. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those really, it, it's going to be a test case moving forward in how the NCAA deals with those sorts of things. And mm-hmm. if I had my way like, you know, I'll just browbeat it once more. He gets that first transfer to Texas for free. Great. He get, you know, he comes back home. Great. You get to sit out a year. You get to, you know, deal with your academics and get yourself online to graduate and, um, you know, get some playing time, learn the new playbook since you just, you know, left behind another playbook. I don't think it's unreasonable to Uh, say, sit there and learn it.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a long process right there. I can't imagine learning two different playbooks. Obviously, if he were to play this
0: year, he his mind would be just spinning. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think, you know, both from the pla like from the standpoint of the player getting the most out of their time in college, I think it makes sense to have them sit in that regard. mm mm-hmm. Um but yeah. not, but not that first time. Not by any means. And you know, if they were, a, you know, if he had spent his time in Texas and got his grad degree or got his undergrad degree in three years, and then wanted to come back to USC, obviously, let him come back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a, how
1: long? How long until he decides he misses Texas? Though That's it's a,
0: so. <laughs> it, it's a really great <laughs> question. Um, we could yeah, just yeah. see a. Sh- you know, the Brew-McCoy shuttle going back and forth. <laughs> oh, yeah, they just need to get
1: him a one-way ticket and just tell him that he's not let back.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Well, yeah, so I, you know, I think just sort of wrapping up this, this segment, I, I, I think where we stood was fairly reasonable. I, I think Bullsby, for as much as I initially read his comments and, and you know, was... The, was really kind of vitriolic about it, I, uh, you know, kind of reading back through it, seeing what he's talking about, I think it makes sense to have a uniform rule. But I think that uniform rule needs to be looser rather than more restrictive. I agree. That's,
1: that's completely fair. And, and the rule we talked about is definitely something that could be a fix. And I don't see that. I don't know how many people would have a problem with that one free transfer, and then after that, you're kind of locked up for a year. I think that's that would be such an easy fix.
0: And I think it—you know—it takes the guesswork out of waivers. It takes the guesswork out of will they get to play next year or won't they? It, it really—it mm-hmm. streamlines everything. It makes it really just black and white, clear for every individual involved.
1: Yep, you and, wouldn't even need a waiver committee anymore. You would, that would just take out set like it the whole process would just be wiped out and it would just give the ncaa more time to worry about other things that are more important
0: it, oh and they have plenty to worry about <laughs> <laughs> but, on, but on that note we're going to take a quick break everybody and we'll be right back to talk about some of the things that have us excited for the 2019 season stay tuned welcome back to the saturday blitz podcast everybody I'm Zach Legalki, and I'm here this week with Saturday Blitz editor Connor Muldowney. Last segment, we talked a bit about transfers, but now we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, leading up to the 2019 season, we're going to use this middle segment to talk about different things leading up to college football's 150th anniversary year. Um, so I just kind of wanted to have a, a nice open discussion, you know, just throw it right out to you, Connor. What are some of the things that you're really most excited about leading up to 2019 starting? I'm excited about the quarterbacks.
1: Give me Trevor Lawrence, give me Tago Valois, give me, you know, Shay Patterson, give me all those guys. I'm excited about all the quarterback play. I want to see if Justin Fields lives up to the heights, I want to see if Tate Martel can win the job in Miami. I think the quarterback is going to be a big quarterback year, and I think that not many people are really talking about how how deep the quarterback pool is this year, which is kind of surprising.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, obviously being an Oregon alum, I'm really excited about Justin Herbert coming back as well. I think he gives the Ducks just a really great chance there in the Pac-12 North. But, yeah, you look at quarterbacks all across the country. You know, another one that has me really excited that we talked about last week is Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma, just looking at him Absolutely. getting the opportunity with Lincoln Riley, who's sort of been the quarterback transfer Heisman whisperer recently.
1: I mean, if if Lincoln Riley could get Jalen Hurts to win the Heisman and have three straight quarterbacks win the Heisman, I don't see any NFL team that won't be giving him a
0: call next year.
1: No, not it That would it. be just unbelievable.
0: Yeah, he would definitely be, be getting plenty of suitors coming at the inter- NFL draft. But, you know, and, like, we have, you know, like, we definitely have the biggest name transfers. But then there's also, like, Brandon Wimbush, you know, leading UCF or you know, fighting for that job at UCF, I think that could be a really interesting play, especially with the way the Knights have played the past couple years.
1: Yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested to see if he has worked on his throwing motion. I know he was way more of a runner with Notre Dame, but his, his arm is just not, it wasn't as good as everyone was expecting going into his junior year, and I'm excited to see if he can kind of take that next step and become an actual candidate for a team like UCF.
0: We've seen, you know, dynamic quarterbacks really play well in that system. And I think, you know, he definitely has the potential to, to step into where to where Mackenzie Milton was last year. And I, I don't I agree with you. I don't think he's quite the same thrower that Milton was. But I also think he can bring more with his legs to the table than Milton did as a quarterback. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how Josh Heupel uses him and I'm excited to see
1: that UCF are they going to go 12 and 0 and claim another national title I don't know we'll see
0: I would I would obviously (laughs) love to see it as somebody who who writes fanatically about the group of five and has covered them since before it was the group of five um at the same time I don't you know I think it has to be one of those claimed national titles like we we've seen all throughout college football history um, you know, even if they run the table a third straight year, I'd be shocked to see the college football playoff committee give them one of those four slots.
1: At one point, they have to give in kind of a little bit. You know, UCF's getting all this attention. People want to see them in the playoff. UCF wants to see them in the playoff. I say throw them in and see what they can do against a team like Alabama. I mean, they seem to think that they can take on Alabama, so it'll be interesting to yeah. see uh, – We all know what happens when people say we want Bama, and it's usually not
0: a good thing. Oh, definitely. And I've said it before (laughs) in the past myself, um, you know, uh, that first college football playoff season, if it was still the BCS, I would have gotten to see an Alabama-Oregon national championship game. And that was one of those things that people were clamoring for for years during the Chip Kelly era and leading early, you know, beyond that. Um, so, it, it, but until, you know, I think that's another big story that I'm really excited to see. Yes, we've seen Clemson step up in, you know, the past couple of years and really become that foil to Bama. Can somebody else do it this year? It, especially somebody outside the SEC?
1: You were talking about your, your Oregon Ducks. They look like a top 10, at least top 10, probably top 5 team. Going into the season returning just about everybody and that offense is scary if anybody's gonna score on Alabama's defense it could be that offense with Herbert and that whole backfield and then they got uh DeJuan Johnson the transfer receiver yeah. and their defense isn't really going anywhere it's only going up so Oregon is definitely a team I would kind of put on that radar to contend with them but there's outside of that I mean who do you look at do you look at Oklahoma again and if you look at Ohio State. Ohio State going to be what they were post Urban Meyer. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I, I'm. It, that's another one that that'll be really interesting to see. Just that that post Meyer landscape in Columbus, um, because I, I think in that division you have a couple of teams that are really going to push them hard. You know, Michigan has obviously been been hyped up a lot leading into this season, which <laughs> I'm sure you've loved a ton. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: oh, I, I hear a lot about the Michigan hype, and I know that, you know, they're the off-season national champions, I think, 20 years running now, so we'll see if that translates on the field.
0: Yeah, certainly. But, you know, beyond that, um, there are question marks at Penn State, especially with, you know, the stories they've had around people going into the transfer portal. And, uh there? Oh, go Something's going on in Happy Valley.
1: I don't I don't know what it is. I don't know if James Franklin's rubbing people the wrong way. I don't know what it is, but people seem to be jumping ship at a crazy rate. And honestly, this could be a, a big transition year for Penn State. It could be as ugly as seven and five. Who knows? It could be six and six. It, yeah. From from how much depth they've lost, it's it could be scary.
0: Certainly. Yeah. Um yeah. I'm I'm kind of wondering if it's like I announced that I'd be going there next year and everybody, you know, got scared that I'd be a hard grader or something. Um, you know, give it a chance, people. Think that could be it. That could have something to do with that one. I definitely did grade for a couple of ducks that are on the current Oregon roster while I was in school there. Um, so it's not that bad, everybody. Please stay. <laughs>
1: Uh well, you never know. They could be a surprise mm-hmm. team. They could they could make a run of the Big Ten title. But from everything i am seeing, I'm seeing fourth place projections in the Big Ten West or Big Ten East, sorry, and I don't know. I just I can't see Penn State contending this year, but for your sake, being on campus,
0: I hope that they do well. Yeah, it'll be fun to see one way or another. You know, if not for me personally, at least for the students that I'll have to be around in class every week. (laughs) Hopefully it won't be two Mobiuses in there in Happy Valley. Yeah, keep the happy in Happy Valley, please. Yes. So yeah, I, I I definitely agree. Quarterback play, some of these coach you know, the coaching changes. I, I think, you know, just staying on coaching changes a bit since we were talking about Meyer, a couple of others are, are really interesting to me in terms of coaches coming back to the game after some time away. Uh you know, Mac Brown at North Carolina, um Les Miles at Kansas. I think it's gonna be really fun to see how these guys are able to adjust. Because they haven't been out of the game a ton of time. But, you know, every year there are new wrinkles that fall through.
1: I think Mag Brown will have his work cut out for him more than Les Miles will. I actually think the Les Miles-Kansas era is going to be surprisingly exciting. I think give them a few years and they'll be bowl bound They could be, you know, eight- or nine-win team, and which is... It might not seem like a lot, but you're talking about Kansas. That's not exactly a team that breaks four wins very often. No,
0: exactly. Like, just looking at how they've been, especially since Mark Mangino was, you know, uh, taken out of the position there. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really hard place to, to get things done. But it can be done. Man, Gino proved that. And I think even looking at another Big 12 team like Iowa State and how they were completely moribund for years. And, you know, they've been able to, to slowly build themselves back up into one of those dark horses in the conference. It, it, it could really follow that same sort of model as long as Miles has the time to do what he needs to do.
1: Iowa State is a perfect example. Matt Campbell will do everything right. The players won't play for him. I mean, you're not going to find too many recruits who are going to say, no, I don't really want to play for Les Miles and, and join this hype train in Lawrence because I think that, you know, Kansas is going to be a fun place to be with both football and basketball, you know, as one of the top programs in the Big 12 but pretty soon.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it, that is definitely a program that's sort of on the up and up. Um, what other, uh, let's let, let's go that direction. What are some pro- other programs that you see sort of with a promising future in 2019 that might have had rougher seasons in the recent past?
1: Well, since I'm such a, a Big Ten guy, I'll stick in that area for, for the start of this. I'll, I'll talk about Nebraska. Mm. I feel like they're a team that's just going to continue to get better. Um, Scott Frost has done such a good job in such a short period of time. They started off I don't know, their record was, was horrible at the start of last year and then they just got hot. And I know they beat uh, my Michigan State Spartans. Well we won't talk about that, but they they have a good young core and that's exactly what you need to be one of those up and coming teams. And you know, Adrian Martinez and they they just have like the swagger that the old Nebraska teams had. And that's kind of scaring some Big Ten teams. I think they could run the Big Ten West for a few years.
0: Wow, you think even this year they could?
1: I I would be surprised if they didn't win the Big Ten West this year.
0: Wow. Okay. Market everybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the, I will say the Big Ten West is also not, you know, a, the, one of the toughest conferences or one of the toughest divisions in the country. But you know you got teams like Northwestern and Wisconsin's always up there. But I think Nebraska just has that swagger. It's all about is the hype going to be too much for them because they're such a young team that could buy into the hype, you know. But Scott Frost has been good at keeping his guys level-headed through that over the years with UCF. But I think that they're going to be a, a tough team for a while, and you know they're going they're going to make life tough on the rest of the Big Ten.
0: I definitely think that you're you're not wrong there in the least. And as somebody who grew up uh, following the Badgers pretty closely, I don't necessarily like it, but at the same time, I I also think that the big 10 is, is much better when Nebraska is a good team. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of the competitive balance in the East that just has not existed on that same level in the West and, you know, elevating Nebraska to a real contender status again is what it's going to take to get them there.
1: Absolutely. I think this is, for Wisconsin to to continue to rise, I think they need a team like Nebraska to step up to kind of challenge them because they've become complacent to where, you know, Northwestern beat them last year and and won the Big Ten West, which was kind of a shock to everybody because, I mean, no, no knock on Northwestern because they're always a very consistent team with Patrick Sherrill there, but nobody expected Northwestern to top a team
0: like Wisconsin. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, any other teams that really stand out to you this year that look like they're on the rise?
1: I'll go with your Pac-12. The team that like I- I'm optimistic about, but maybe I shouldn't be optimistic about, I feel like UCLA is going to be on the rise soon, and I really like uh, Darian Thompson Robinson, and I like That whole team, I just feel like, has something there that we didn't see last year because they finished 3-9, but I think that they're close to kind of breaking through with Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is not going to stay with a losing record for very long there. I just think that they're going to be one of those teams to watch in the Pac-12.
0: And I, you know, I think it's a great choice. John and I have talked in earlier editions of the podcast about just how wide open the Pac-12 South looks like it's going to be this year. And so, you know, UCLA definitely has a chance to steal a couple of wins. I don't know if they're necessarily going to be Pac-12 South champions this year, Um, But I definitely think that bowl eligibility is well within reach for that team. And, you know, even eight, nine wins if everything falls right. Um, The player I'm really excited about on that team, you mentioned Thompson Robinson, but Joshua Kelly in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, their ground game, I think he is really the catalyst for that ground game. We saw a bunch of players who just never really panned out in the you know the late Mora era, and you know as holdovers for Chip, but you know Joshua Kelly just really looks like somebody who just absolutely fits in a Chip Kelly offense, and I think he's gonna he's gonna be the catalyst for them this year if they do make some waves.
1: Absolutely, and he came out of nowhere. He was he was a JUCO transfer, I think, or was he a JUCO, or was he a he went to a smaller school, but he came out of nowhere, and nobody nobody really expected that out of him. And he took over, and they've they had numerous four and five star running backs in UCLA, and none of them panned out like you said under Mora. And then Kelly comes in and just dominates in his first year. It was it was fun to watch.
0: Yeah, it really was, and I I think that's sort of the the shot of energy that that team needed to see that they really can compete again against those other teams in the South. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And, and another team that I, I wrote about the other day. I don't know if you have any opinion on this team, but Syracuse from the ACC. I, I feel like you know Babers has just done such a good job with that team in such a little amount of time, making them you know going from four and eight, four and eight to ten and three, and now they're projected to win maybe diner time games again this year.
0: You know, I think they're a really great team. It's going to be interesting with you know life after Eric Dungy. But I I think there are just so many other pieces there on that team that you're not just going to see a complete deflating like we saw with Louisville post Lamar Jackson.
1: Yeah, that was rough. Uh, And and what, speaking of Louisville,
0: what do you think about their future with uh, Satterfield? I love him as a coach. I, I think it's, it is a smart hire. And, I don't think it's going to be anything immediate. I think they really need to give him, you know, this is definitely a year minus one, not even a year zero for them. They really, like, I think three years down the line, it's going to look really smart.
1: Mm-hmm. They are definitely bare bones right now. It's good. It was left in such a bad place with Petrino, and, and I think I like the hair too, and I think that was one of the better, you know, Smaller school to not that App State is a, a small school anymore. Everybody knows about them, but you know, smaller school to Power Five. I think that was one of the best moves.
0: Oh yeah, and to be fair to App State, when you're a Sun Belt team, you're still going to be called a smaller school, um, right? And a great smaller school, but you're still, um, you know, part of the little sisters of the poor. Let's let's face it.
1: They'll they'll always have that win over Michigan, though. Oh. anybody who's anybody in college football knows about App State just because of that.
0: Oh yeah, and and what a phenomenal win it was! Like I still think about that from time to time. I mean, what an it was just a ridiculous way to kick off what ended up being a ridiculous season, wire to wire, back in twenty oh seven.
1: It was a mind mind blowing win. I. To this day, I can't even believe that happened, and just I, I remember the shock that everybody had when it happened too. It was just unbelievable.
0: Oh yeah, I was sitting in the ki- in a our break room off the kitchen in catering on the University of Oregon campus. I hadn't even gotten back into school yet. I was just uh, you know sitting there watching the game with some of the other students on a break. We went in because we heard that they were actually had a chance of of beating the Wolverines. And so we went in to watch Mm -hmm. it and it was just like jaws drop, you know? Um, I don't think anybody could have possibly predicted that sort of outcome from that game.
1: Absolutely not. That was, that had to have been the biggest upset, at least during my lifetime that I can remember.
0: Definitely. Um, probably mine as well, to be quite fair. Um, I, you know, I think something like that, especially with an FCS team just going and beating a top-five preseason team like that, I don't know if we'll ever see that again in our lifetimes, so. Probably not, especially with how, how little FCS teams are being scheduled
1: nowadays and the new rules with conferences scheduling them. Yeah, I, I think that was a once-in-a-lifetime type of deal.
0: Yeah, Um so yeah, I'm not even gonna bother asking you who, who you think is gonna be this year's app state coming in and beating a, a highly ranked team. I I, oh, I as much as I wish it was going to happen, I, I don't think it's anything that anybody can really call out. <laughs> no,
1: no, I don't I don't see that happening. I just there's just too much of a talent gap nowadays with the Power Five and the i S. I'm not knocking the S C S at all, but they're The teams that are scheduled, like the SEC has a bunch of um, FCS opponents, and they're usually four or five touchdowns at the closest. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen this year. Well,
0: and that's the thing. No, I could be wrong. Is the teams that they schedule, too, let's be fair about it. They're not scheduling North Dakota State. They're not scheduling (laughs) James Madison. They're not scheduling, you know, a a South Dakota. They're just not, I mean, the closest we've seen is when Iowa has scheduled Northern Iowa. Yeah. Didn't Iowa lose to North Dakota State a couple of years ago? They did, and I'm sure that'll be the last time the Hawkeyes ever even considered playing
1: <laughs> them. Yeah, that's a lose-lose situation right there. That's definitely something they learned from. Yeah. How how exciting would, a, like, an Alabama, North Dakota State, no, maybe not Alabama, but, like, a like a Notre Dame-North Dakota State game. How, how exciting would that be?
0: I think it'd be unbelievable. I And, yeah. you know, I don't think Notre Dame obviously is one of the two or three FBS programs that have never scheduled an FCS school. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think the Fighting Irish would ever actually go through with that. Um, no. And I think part of that is as much because – they know they have a real chance of losing that game against, against North Dakota state NDSU is not a joke. And I, you know, I think with Chris Kleeman leaving this year and going to take over at Kansas state, um, you know, there are some question marks around the basin, but it's um, at the same time, we saw that happen when, um, when they lost, you know, they've lost coaches before and they've just kept things rolling. And so I don't think losing one guy is necessarily going to end that train.
1: No. They are the Alabama of the STS, it seems like, where they just... I mean, obviously, Nick Saban's been at Alabama forever, but no matter who's in place, no matter what the personnel is, they just find a way to win.
0: Yeah, and I, I would reverse that. And I would say that Alabama is the closest thing that the FBS has to a North Dakota state. Um, yeah. Because, you know, like you look at the dominance that in Alabama has had and they haven't come close to winning the number of championships that NDSU has, you know, it's seven and eight years now. Um, They're really looking like this, like a Wisconsin whitewater, you know, when, uh, when Leopold was there just running the table year after year, that that's like the closest corollary I can see at this point between you know in two teams and you've got to go lower in division rather than higher to see it
1: so maybe teams should start saying we want north dakota state instead of
0: saying we want bama exactly i would be totally (laughs) down with seeing that maybe all teams except for iowa will be saying that yeah probably um (laughs) I, yeah, I know North Dakota State has pulled off some big wins against multiple Power Five teams in recent years. So, but they haven't—they haven't had one of those games in the past couple of years because they've just been so dominant.
1: Nobody wants to play them at the F- FBS level. It's a, it is, like I said, it's a lose-lose situation. So, I don't know. That would be a fun game, but you know, it'll be fun in our dreams because it's never going to happen.
0: Exactly. Well, I, I, you know, just to continue this thread and and uh, just give you a little bit more space. Is there any other big story that really just like jumps out at you that you're like absolutely jonesing for the season to start to see it, you know, fall into place? I just,
1: as a big time guy, I am very curious. I'm, I'm obviously Michigan State, but I'm curious to see if Michigan can live up to that hype that they've been getting every year and actually make it to the playoffs. And if they don't uh, do the fans jump ship and kind of call for Harbaugh's head or do they give him more time? I'm just curious as to that. I'm curious as to how Ryan day can handle Ohio state. There's just so many like borderline contenders that I could see either, you know, having a really disappointing season or having a really exciting season and kind of, Surpassing expectations. There's so many of those, you know, fringe contenders that are going to be so exciting to watch. And I, this is, it's, it's going to be a very wide open year, obviously behind Clemson and Alabama, like it always is, but it's like a Texas or, I mean, there's Texas back. We'll hear that a million times this year, but you know, they could be, they got Ellen, Jared quarterback and he looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the country mm-hmm. and Georgia beat Alabama. You know, there's this, we had talked about this every year, too, and they, they've come close. But, I mean, they beat them in the SEC title game a couple years ago, but last year they just folded at the end of the game. So there's so many fringe playoff contenders that'll be very fun to keep an eye on, and I think it's going to be a really, really exciting year.
0: Yeah, I, I could totally see another year like 07 where you see that one spot bounce around, and the you know the top two spots in the polls just sort of cycle between a couple of teams before it you know falls back on the usual suspects again.
1: Mm-hmm. And that would be great for the sport. Oh, so not, not everybody wants to see Alabama and Clemson be one and two for an entire year. People want to see you know some some no names rise up the polls. You know, when when was Kansas ranked in the top five? That under Mangino, wasn't that? That was was that 07? I think it was, was 07,
0: Yeah, I think that was when they went to the Orange Bowl. Last was 07. Okay, so
1: yeah, like that was a crazy year. We need we need that in college football because some people grow restless with the Alabama Clemson train.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm and just... I think
1: this is the year to do it though. This is this. There's so many teams that could
0: just beat anybody. Totally, yeah. It was oh seven when they went twelve and one, and they finished the year yeah. at number seven. So that just
1: doesn't even sound right. Like Kansas going twelve—that just sounds ridiculous. But yeah, that's. I think UCF had a good year that year. One of those years, not UCF, USF. Yeah, they had a. Yeah, that was yeah. that
0: same year back when they were still in the Big East. Um, under they G- were
1: they were up as high as number two, I think.
0: Yep, yep. They were one of those teams that vaulted up to number two and then fell. <laughs> Wild, just unbelievable. Those yeah.
1: two teams, if if, you have, if someone went into a coma 20 years ago and I told them that Kansas and South Florida were ranked in the top five in the same year, they would have called me crazy. Yeah,
0: exactly. They would have, They would. yeah, you would be the one getting committed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm hoping for another one of those years. That, that would be the ideal situation, and I think that this could be the year
0: where it happens. I would love it as well, and I think on that note let's cross our fingers for it as we head into our last break here and then, when we come back we 're going to be talking a bit about uh some of connor's favorite memories of college football. so stay tuned. Welcome back for our last segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week everybody i 'm here with Connor Muldowney, our editor at Saturday Blitz, uh, filling in for John this week. In this uh, segment, we're going to get a little bit personal. So as our regular listeners know, John and I have gone off on a couple of different tangents in terms of most heartbreaking losses and our favorite victories, you know, stadiums where we'd love to go see a game and bowl games we wish we had seen in person. So I'm going to ask Connor some of these questions and he gets to sit down for our 20 questions. So... uh <laughs> Yeah, let me start out with the one that we started this podcast series out with, uh, Connor. I, I'd love to hear some of the most disappointed losses you've ever had to endure as a fan.
1: Oh, man. Being a Michigan State fan, I've had to endure quite a few. Oof. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, more, more so in the John L. Smith era. I don't know if you remember
0: him oh, at
1: all. I'm sure you do. Yes. But the John L. Smith era brought way too many disappointing losses, And I think that the one of the more memorable ones was, I think it was 2006 when Michigan state played Notre Dame and they had a huge lead on Notre Dame. Then it started raining. I don't It was just a mess. And Notre Dame just stormed back, won the game. And then after that, just the whole season was just a meltdown. And that's basically when John L. Smith's job was kind of a goner at that point. That was probably one of the most disappointing. Um, but Mark D'Antonio has been good to Michigan State fans over the years, but there have been disappointing ones. I think Central Michigan, when I was a freshman at Michigan State oh, in 2009, they came into East Lansing and beat Michigan State, and I had a bunch of Central Michigan friends at the game, and I never heard the end of it. That was probably one of those, you know, yeah, I'd like to forget games, but it, it happens, and you know, I'll own up to it, and I'll just try to forget about it. <laughs>
0: I totally understand. You know that's the way every painful loss really is, especially when it comes against uh, another team from in-state. Whether or not it's your main rival or not, just having that proximity mm-hmm. means that you, you can take a lot of crap for a loss that you didn't even oh, yeah. participate in. <laughs> people don't understand.
1: Uh, I mean, if obviously people understand in-state rivalries, but. The magnitude of, like, a Michigan-Michigan State and State rivalry is so intense that, it, I mean, bragging rights are so important in this series, especially with the trophy on the line. You know, you, your neighbors are all, you know, either Michigan or Michigan State, die hard. Um And that, that has led to some very disappointing losses in that rivalry. I think the one of the more disappointing ones was um, 2012, I want to say where Michigan State lost on a, a last second field goal and our Braves both teams could only score field goals that's how great their offenses were and it happened to be a, a last second field goal and you know it was one of D'Antonio's worst seasons but any time Michigan State loses to to Michigan it's it's a disappointing loss so
0: yeah yeah no i it, it's funny for me as well it seems like some of those most disappointing losses come in seasons where Nothing else was on the line, really. Um, It's funny because I would have thought, you know, one of those immediate ones that jump out were when they made it to the college football playoff and just got (laughs) obliterated.
1: But at the same time... on my list as well. Yeah, the the Alabama thrashing, that mm -hmm. was... That ruined my... The planning of that game, the New Year's Eve the whole schedule for college football was so messed up. They had on New Year's, they ruined everybody's New Year's because Michigan State got blown out thirty eight nothing. I just remember not even caring when the clock struck zero at midnight. Because you expected a good game and it it didn't turn out that way. So that was definitely a disappointing game.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, you know, obvious. I think I've forced you to relive some pain enough. Um, so, so let's switch gears. And what are some of your favorite victories that you've been able to witness over time? Oh man, uh, I'm a kind of
1: a, a victim of the moment. So, let's say back in 2011, I want to say Michigan State in Wisconsin. Your favorite Wisconsin team? Oh yeah. Um, the Hail Mary from Kirk cousins. That was, I was at that game and I just remember how chaotic it was after they ruled it a touchdown. I, I know you probably know exactly where you were when it happened.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I was sitting out in Oregon and uh, I think I might've thrown something even when that happened. So. <laughs> so yeah, that would be on my opposite list.
1: It was a a definite fluke, the way the ball bounced, but that was such an incredible game from start to finish. I think it was just a back-and-forth game the whole time, and everybody expected those two teams to be contending for a Big Ten title, and that game did not let anybody down. So that was a really fun one. And obviously, 2015, when when the botched punt by Michigan, that had to have been, I want to say, the most memorable win of my lifetime that was not a postseason win. Yeah, that was such a insane ending to a game.
0: Yeah, I I, I remember that quite vividly. What a crazy sequence there!
1: <laughs> I I just remember thinking, all he has to do is is punt it. Game is over. But like, there's a very slight chance that they block it. I just remember the snap and when he botched it. All I started doing is jumping up and down. I didn't even see you. Like I wasn't paying close enough to, attention to see that they picked it up and started running it back. I was just going insane.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I, I can imagine just absolutely losing it for that moment. Yeah,
1: nothing could ruin my mood that day. That was probably the best ending to, you know, what starts. Like, people forget. I mean, everybody, all all fans seem to think that, you know, Michigan State won that game by a miracle, which very well may be true. But people seem to forget that that was one of the best college football games of that season. There was just a back-and-forth defensive battle, like, intense every single play mattered two good quarterbacks going at each other it was such a good game and people just forget about it because of that play
0: yeah yeah definitely and i think we tend to do that with games that end on crazy sort of fluke plays like that you know i think about when the kick six happened for auburn you know that that looms large in our heads when we look at those games but and you know the the previous fifty nine minutes and fifty seconds all just kind of fade away for us
1: right it's a, It's almost like that didn't happen. It was just that one play, and then the game is decided it's, fans can be fickle like that, but you know it's that's the what's so great about the game is any singular play can have so much meaning, and that's just what makes it so great
0: yeah well and, and that's I mean that's totally the beauty of college football in general. And, you know, you can pick any play and any time in the game and you can just see really crazy, incredible, fluky, fun to watch moments.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's That's why it's the greatest sport, greatest, you know, college football. I think trumps anything for me, NFL, anything. Yeah. So I, I just think the unpredictability is what makes it so fun. And I just every year there's something different that you'll never see again or never have seen before. And it's just every single year this happens.
0: Yeah, there's, there's always going to be something unique on the plate.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think Oh, go for well, it. One other game that I, I want to include because it's, it's just so ingrained in my brain other than uh, 2013 slash, I guess it would be 14 Rose Bowl, but the, the Cotton Bowl from the 2014 season for Michigan State when they played Baylor and they were down, I want to say, 41 to 14. Oh, and they yeah. came back and won that game. That, that was incredible.
0: That was a fun game to watch. And, uh, yeah, it was it, it's always wild watching a team's momentum just completely get sapped like that mm-hmm. as it happened at the mm-hmm. Um And, you know, we tend to think of other sports as bigger momentum sports. You know, like basketball, you obviously see momentum swings all throughout a game. And I think uh, momentum is something that gets glossed over a bit in college football, especially when you're dealing with what are honestly still kids in a lot of regards. You know, these are young adults and emotion can really get the better of you. Emotion can really play uh, a, a major factor in a game like this.
1: Absolutely, I feel like momentum in college football is is so much harder to gain, and it's also so much harder to overcome. Yeah. When one team has momentum, it's it's almost like okay, we have to just grab hold of the entire game and kind of make a big play, or else it's just going to bury us. And I, it's, I agree completely.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I you know I think we've covered a couple of really great victories and losses um let's look a bit more historical now so you know I mentioned some class like we we definitely had a segment where we looked at classic bowl games we wish we'd seen um both John and I had some interesting ones but more historical and more recent um are there any bowl games that really stick out to you that you really wish you could go back in time and and be at the stadium for
1: One that jumps out is not—it's not an incredibly old game. It's actually the 2007 Fiesta Bowl. That was one of the more exciting, you know, Boise State powerhouse Oklahoma. Nobody expected Boise State to even be in the game, and just watching it on TV and everybody going wild. You know, some people weren't even fans of either team, and they were just going nuts when Boise State was scoring and you know, winning on that Statue of Liberty two-point conversion. Yeah. I feel like that would would have been such a fun game just to see an like a complete underdog take down this powerhouse in college football, which we see those games kind of more and more now with underdogs taking out powerhouse and bowl games. But I feel like that is like the pinnacle of, you know, David versus Goliath games that turned
0: out in David's favor. I That was one that both John and I had on our list as well. And I think it's, You know, you saw Utah become the first BCS buster a couple years before, but they, you know, they got the opportunity to play a, a, what was a fairly unremarkable pit team in their bowl game. And so it really wasn't that crazy to see them come out with a victory, um, even as a Mountain West team. But that Fiesta Bowl that you're talking about, it was really, that was really the game that, that pitted somebody against a powerhouse no pun intended there with the panthers but you know oklahoma was a legitimate team that year they were legitimately a strong team there was no like they just kind of backed in because they won a weak conference as happened with Pitt, the, you know in 04 it, it, oklahoma was a huge favorite and it, exactly they there are Few Cinderella stories that are just more enduring in the, you know, in the collective mind of college football fans in that game.
1: I agree. I think that's the game that kind of put those group of five teams on the map. You know, Mm -hmm. if if Boise State wasn't to lose that game, you know, nobody would really be talking about you know, the, the Boise States or the UCFs or any teams like that kind of contending with it because there was no precedent. There's nothing to to go off of saying that, you know, a team like this could actually beat a powerhouse. But then you see UCF does it with Auburn a couple of years ago. And it's, it's just, that was the game that kind of changed the landscape a little bit.
0: Yeah, I even think about TCU when they got to play in the Rose Bowl against Wisconsin mm-hmm. and won that game. It, it was obviously kind of mixed feelings for me as somebody who who loves the the little guys but also loves the Badgers um but you know it, it is just really a phenomenon that I think if Boise State doesn't win that game against Oklahoma it's going to be a much tougher time for Hawaii to get into the Sugar Bowl um, the following year, I, I don't think you'd see a fiesta bowl pitting Boise State and TCU against one another. I think only one of those teams would have been considered for a BCS game that year. Um, yeah, you, you it, there would be no chance for a team like Northern Illinois to get into the Orange Bowl as a one loss team. And I, I think that game really was the catalyst for forgiving those non- Non-automatic qualifying conferences, uh, an actual voice at the table in a way that Utah um, just was never. Western Michigan, yeah, exactly. Central Michigan as well. Um, Just all these different really good teams along the way that got their chance. And I think what's interesting from the BCS era is non-AQ teams went five and two in those games. And that includes, um, or I think five and they went five and two. If you don't include the the all little guy fiesta bowl between the horned frogs yeah. and the Broncos,
1: that's that's an incredible stat. Actually, that that game opened so many doors for the smaller schools, and I think it just kind of put more national respect on them. Obviously, they still don't get enough respect or attention just because they don't have the following, but. That's, I mean, nobody overlooks Boise State anymore. Everybody knows who Boise State is. Well, so that's, that that opens so many doors for the, the smaller schools.
0: Well, and even nowadays, Boise State still gets respect because of that game, even after a couple of years where they haven't been quite as big a contender. I, I think uh-huh. Boise State still gets the benefit of the doubt in a lot of ways, more than a decade later. Absolutely. But I mean, they have had
1: good years. Obviously, they got they have a good coach.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, they just have a tradition of winning nowadays. And obviously, Chris Peterson moved on, which uh, that that move still puts them on the map a little bit because Chris Peterson's having success at a power five school, and he came from Boise State, where he had I don't know, he he had an unbelievable record there. I don't know what it was, but he probably had a handful of losses. I want to say it was like
0: eighty two and nine. It was something yeah. ridiculous <laughs> like that. Unbelievable. Any other bowl games that stick out to you you wish you'd seen back in the past?
1: There's there's one other that sticks out, and it's the '06 Rose Bowl. I'm sure that's oh. one that you've talked about before with Texas and USC. That had to have been tops on everybody's list of like a, dang, I wish I was there type of moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, ridiculous, that game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, unreal I mean Vince Young was so good it's it's hard to believe that he didn't pan out in the NFL for how good he was in college but that game was so fun to watch and it just had that excitement like when you think about good bowl games you think about just everyone in the stadium going absolutely insane the whole game and that's how it was I mean every score of the stadium was just electric you don't see that usually. I mean, you don't you don't see that in a, just a regular bowl game, but that bowl game just – it just had a different feel to it. I don't know how to explain it. It just had a
0: different feel. Yeah, yeah. There was – it felt like you were watching two teams that were obviously head and shoulders above the rest of the country. There was no doubt that season that um, – you were watching the best two teams in the country. You had absolutely no BCS controversy that year in a way that was rare for the BCS era.
1: It it was a heavyweight fight that everyone wanted, and it panned out exactly how everybody wanted it to pan out. A touchdown, you know, with seconds left to win and kind of derail a dynasty like USC, It it was actually, you know it was crazy to think about. And I obviously wasn't super old at the time. I don't remember vividly everything that happened, but I remember watching it and just being like, wow, this is, you know, I think that's where I kind of fell in love with college football. Like anything could happen. I I might not have a rooting interest in either of these teams, but it's just fun to watch.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking back a couple of years before that, a similar game that falls in that vein for me is the uh, 03 Fiesta Bowl where it was Ohio State beating Miami in double overtime. Um, I think in the BCS era, those two games just stand, you know, as one. I I think you definitely have that USC-Texas game as a a number one game, but then just right below it, you know, two right at two, just butting up against it is that fiesta bowl.
1: Yeah, that was, I think, <laughs> funny enough, I think that was a game that ended a little past my bedtime for that time. I think it was, you know, in grade school. So I was just uh, – I couldn't watch the whole thing, but I remember watching it up to a certain point. You know, Willis McGahee, I think Murray's Claret was in that game, and it was just yeah. – it was just such a unbelievable, like, back and forth thing. It went two overtimes. You know, there was so much talent on both of those teams. It was just, like, two NFL teams going at it. It was actually – Really fun to watch.
0: Yeah, I think that's that. That's what we were getting at with both of those games, is it really felt like you were watching a bunch of professionals playing, that professional-level talent.
1: Yeah, I think there were 18 uh, first-round picks between the two teams on, in that game, yeah. which is mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, completely unreal to, yeah. Con- to consider that more than half of the, you know... <laughs> The starters. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That was a good game. I wish I was a little older for that game so I could kind of take that in more. But, you know, I've gotten to see many good bowl games over the years, and I'm just grateful that I've seen the ones that I have seen.
0: Totally. (laughs) Well, shifting gears a little bit for one last question before we wrap up for the week. Um, Stadiums. Obviously, college football has some absolutely incredible, really historic stadiums. Um, Are there some stadiums that stick out to you that you really still just, you know, bucket list, want to make sure that you get to in your lifetime?
1: Number one uh, has to be the Rose Bowl. There's no more exciting stadium to, in my mind. I just feel like it has so much history and so many unbelievable games that took taking place there and i was i lived in california for six months when uh michigan state made the rose bowl i actually moved out there days before the michigan state stanford game in 2014 january 2014 and i didn't have the money at the time to go to that game And it still haunts me to this day that i couldn't go to the rose bowl for for that game just because it was such a perfect opportunity but that has to top the list Mm-hmm. But there are so many other great stadiums like Notre Dame and you know Tiger Stadium and, and Ohio Stadium and I, I actually haven't been to the Big House, oh, in Michigan. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I would be welcome there. I don't know if, <laughs> if you know, I don't know if it would be as welcoming as the other ones. But that's definitely a, a historic stadium. Or even Austin Stadium. I, I feel like that's such a cool one. That not many fans can say they've gone to, and it's just such a cool place to take in a football game. It's just a unique experience.
0: It is really a treat if you can get out to Eugene. I highly recommend it.
1: That's that's definitely one of those stadiums that just, for some reason, has just caught my eye. Even when I was younger, I was like, "Wow, that's that's a cool." St-. I think it was just the excitement of the Chip Kelly offense that just drew me to it. But totally, I just feel like. Eugene is such a cool place. You know, such a cool college town and I just feel like it would be such a fun place to visit on a Saturday.
0: Yeah. It 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 is a unique flavor to it. Um getting that sort of um West Coast, Willamette Valley vibe there, you know, in the place where mm-hmm. old, old hippies go to die and yet it still has that that really fun, really vibrant, you know, football fan atmosphere.
1: What what would be the biggest for you? Obviously, you touched on this before, but what outside of you know the the classics like you know Rose Bowl and, and other ones, what what would be your biggest bucket list stadium?
0: You know, I still want to get to Camp Randall, mm-hmm. and we talked about I'm going to be there within the next three years. I made that promise when we originally <laughs> talked about it. Um, I'm you know I'd love to get to. Um, some of those sec venues, I think places like Neyland stadium and Brian Denny and, uh, yeah. well, you mentioned Tiger stadium, obviously I think some of those are just really exciting venues that I can't even imagine the amount of energy that's there. Cause I've never been in a stadium quite that large, um, mm-hmm. and around that many people at once that I think that would be really cool. And then also, um, You know, something John and I talked about were, like, Harvard Stadium and the Yale Bowl and getting to see some of these really early, you know, like, really historic venues in college football. Um, As somebody that writes about the history of the sport, it it, it would obviously be really fun to just be in the presence of the place where so many past players played before. Absolutely. You could even do,
1: like, a stadium review. That would be... That, that's right up your alley for like a historic stadium like that. That would be, yeah. that would be really fun to do.
0: Yeah. And then obviously you mentioned, you know, being in the shadow of touchdown Jesus, I think Notre oh, Dame yeah. stadium is just such an iconic venue, whether you're one of those people who love the fighting Irish or you're one of the fans of the other 129 FBS teams that absolutely <laughs> hate them. Um, you, you definitely have to respect the history that's there.
1: Notre Dame would definitely be a cool one. Like like you said, not not a huge fan of the Fighting Arms, but that stadium. It just I feel like the whole campus just has this different vibe to it. You know, it just feels historic. It just has like there's there's been so many greats that have come through there. It just has I don't know. It would probably just give you goosebumps just being at Notre Dame Stadium. That's just my input on it. And I've, I hope one day I'm able to go there. You know, Michigan State might play them or. Even if it's just a, a normal game, that would be a really cool one to try to check out.
0: Totally, yeah. I I wouldn't even care if it was somebody I was actually rooting for to be there. Like, I'd just love mm-hmm. to be in that geography. You're a Midwest guy. You, you, you definitely should check that out. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to definitely be much closer for the next couple of years to to all of those venues now that I'm moving eastward again, so... I'll have to uh Beaver Beaver Stadium's a cool one. Oh my goodness, yeah, that was one I definitely named on my list. And uh when I was out there visiting State College in April, you know, just driving past it. It's it, it's really funny because it's a stadium that you can tell was built in stages. It's very much looks like an erector set from the outside. Um yeah. but at the same time it's just so imposing. Um, you know, you look at those big stadiums that hold more than a hundred thousand people and I, you know, it it just blows my mind how, how they even come to exist. But, you know, we drove past it when I first got to town and my first thought was, Jesus, you could fit like two or three Autzens in this place.
1: (laughs) It is an intense, I would say an intense, uh, atmosphere for opposing teams that, That's one of those stadiums where it's just like you almost expect to lose if your favorite team is going there. You you might not lose. You might be an overwhelming favorite, but just the atmosphere is just so intense that it's just, you know, it's hard to overcome.
0: Yeah, you can't count on anything in a place like that.
1: I agree. Well, let me ask you kind of one more personal question. I know you probably weren't playing on this, but what is
0: the most underwhelming stadium you've ever been to? Oh boy, you know, um, I honestly, living in, growing up in Wyoming, I, I didn't get to visit too many college football stadiums and, um, be, you know, being out in Oregon, there were only a couple of teams that you could really see regularly, but for me, um, I love Providence Park as a place to see the Timbers play. And to see Portland State play there, it really takes on a completely different kind of dingy, kind of depressing atmosphere. And I think part of that is the fact that you don't see more than three or 4,000 people in the seats of, um, you know, what back then was only a 22,000-seat stadium, and since then they've added 4,000 more seats to it. Um, so, you know, I think that's... Like, I love the venue. I used to live two blocks up the hill in Portland from that that site back before it was even an MLS stadium. Um, So I love that place. And at the same time, it really is not the greatest place to watch a college football game. (laughs) Underwhelming is what you would call it. Yeah, especially because it was my first time in a press box as well. I was covering it for the Portland State newspaper and – It's just a really, yeah, it's just a really odd feeling. It's kind of a a haphazard little catwalk to the press box that's just kind of like suspended above the the seats. and A gust of
1: wind could blow you over.
0: Exactly. And you kind of look down on this and, you know, just like, it's real. I mean, honestly, when you get into the bowels of any stadium, they're really not that beautiful a place. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're actually going down to locker rooms and you're going down to, to even the field level, like once you get inside from the field, it's just a lot of concrete, no matter where you go. Um, but yeah, the bones. I, exactly. So yeah, I'd have to say like the most underwhelming experience for me as, you know, in a life of loving college football had to be covering my first games in person at just a stadium that was way too big for the team that was playing there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. How about you? I would
1: have, I would have to go with, it would either be Northwestern. I haven't gone to too many outside of Spartan Stadium, but I would say Northwestern has a glorified high school stadium, which, I mean, they don't have the biggest football following. And it's usually kind of a, a split between opposing fans and Northwestern fans there. And it's happened at that there twice. And it's usually a 50, 50 split between Michigan state fans and Northwestern fans when I go. And it's just such a, it's hard to even describe. It's like, it is a glorified, there's probably high school stadiums in Texas bigger than this place.
0: Wow. Yeah. But
1: it's, it's, it's kind of cool. But at the same time, it's just like, I couldn't imagine, you know, having my favorite team play here. It's just so small. Mm-hmm. And then another one would be Illinois. Oh, just yeah. because their fans, I mean, they've been so, so fed up with the football team over the years that I, I think when they were down by two touchdowns, it just kind of emptied out, and there's kind of a, a dead atmosphere after that. I heard a lot of heckling before the game, but the second they got down two touchdowns, it kind of stopped.
0: Just kind of drains out. <laughs> it,
1: there was no energy in the entire stadium.
0: I totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's a wonderful place to leave off for this week. Um, just leave you guys all with an underwhelming note. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just want to say before we sign off, thank you so much for for joining me this week, Connor. It was really a pleasure to to get to talk some football with you.
1: I, I Thank you for having me. I'm glad to come back as a guest anytime.
0: Awesome. I'm sure we'll be having you on more. Well, everybody, John will be back again with us next week when we're here next Wednesday for the Saturday Blitz podcast. For now, uh, have a wonderful week. Continue dreaming about the football season to come, and we'll be talking with you more next Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in.